Australia's military history is more than just a collection of dates and the locations of war-ravaged battlefields. It is the stories of service and sacrifice of those who have answered the call of their country of birth or adoption and the enduring legacy they have created. Join me as we look into one of those stories. I'm your host, Ross Manuel, and welcome to I Was Only Doing My Job, Australia's Military History, a Doc Network podcast. Now let's get started. G'day friends and welcome to episode 51 of the podcast. This episode is actually a special milestone as it marks two years since the first episode was released. And coincidentally, it's actually been released on the anniversary of the date Leslie Bull Allen carried out those wounded Americans from the slopes of Mount Tambu, which is focus of the first episode. I just wanted to thank you all again for your continued support as each episode has now been listened to over 100 times and at the time of recording, three episodes have actually crossed the 200 listen milestone. If it wasn't for the support from each and every one of you, there is no way I would have kept going. So for that, I thank you. Like last episode, this is the latest installment of History Talk's Shipwreck Summer. And as always, you can continue on with the conversation over on our social media channels and even join the Arm and Emu Brigade over on our Discord server. As always, links to everything are on our website and the show notes. So let's get underway with this week's episode. Stephen Lamont was born on the 18th of October, 1898 in Coleron, Ireland to James Lamont, a shirt cutter, and his wife, Belle. He was baptised on the 7th of December, 1898, at Terrace Row Presbyterian Church in Coleroon. The family later moved to Scotland, living first in Govan, then in Anderston. Sadly, Lamont's mother passed away on the 17th of April, 1904, and his father remarried Jane Letson. Most likely, Lamont attended the Fairfield Road School, not far from where he grew up in Govan, where his father took up work at the local dockyards as a ship fitter. On the 5th of March 1914, at the age of 15 and a half, he enlisted in the Royal Navy for service in the First World War for a period of 12 years. His record stated that he was previously employed as a van boy, which, as the name suggests, was a young man who assisted a van driver delivering goods. He commenced his training at the shore installation HMS Ganges at Shotley at the rank of boy. Following this initial training on the 28th of January 1915, he was posted to the Seamanship Signaling and Telegraphy School HMS Vivid 1 in Devonport, where he was trained in signals and telegraphy. His first sea duty was aboard the light cruiser HMS Dublin as a signalman in December 1915. Dublin had seen operational service during the Gallipoli campaign, though by the time that Lamont joined its complement, it was in British waters undergoing refit. For most of the First World War, he would rotate between Dublin and Vivid 1, and on the 31st of May 1916, he was, quote, slightly wounded in action, unquote, as a result of HMS Dublin's participation in the Battle of Jutland. The Battle of Jutland was fought over two days and was the largest naval battle of the First World War, and the only time that British and German dreadnoughts actually came to blows with each other. It was a confused and bloody action involving 250 vessels and approximately 100,000 men. In total, 25 ships were lost and over 8,500 killed, with both sides declaring victory. Germany did sink more ships, but never threatened the North Atlantic ever again, while the British fleet did take a licking, but was ready for action the following day. Interestingly though, HMAS Australia was actually supposed to participate in this battle, but as a result of being rammed by HMS New Zealand, actually missed the engagement with New Zealand taking Australia's place in the line. In April 1918, Lamont would join the battlecruiser HMS Tiger for patrols in the North Sea until October, when he was assigned to the newly commissioned seaplane carrier HMS Vindictive for the month, for returning to Vivid 1 just in time for the armistice. In the post-war Navy, Lamont would find himself posted to a series of dreadnoughts and battleships, starting with HMS Ajax in March 1919, followed by the Gallipoli Campaign veteran Europa. 
he finished his military career aboard the sloop HMS Byrony. Despite signing up for a 12-year term, the downsizing of the Royal Navy after the First World War saw him discharged after six, though before he left the service, he did pass the necessary qualifications to be appointed a petty officer. Following his service in the Royal Navy, he migrated to Australia, arriving on the 12th of February 1922 aboard the SS Demosthenes, and settled in civilian life, working as a barman in the Grandview Hotel in Fairfield, Victoria. Three years later, on the 6th of July 1925, he married Ermie O'Farrell in St Peter and Paul's Church in South Melbourne. In 1937, Lamont would join the Royal Australian Naval Reserve. At the commencement of the Second World War, Lamont was mobilised for active service for his country of choice for a second global conflict on the 2nd of September 1939 at the rank of Chief Yeoman of Signals. Owing to his previous technical experience in the Royal Navy and his time with the Naval Reserve, and reported to HMAS Cerberus, the primary training facility for naval recruits, at the Flinders Naval Depot in Western Port Bay near Melbourne at the age of 41. At the completion of his training, he spent several months assigned to the auxiliary minesweeper HMAS Aurora. Following this, on the 26th of March 1940, he was assigned to HMAS Penguin 2, a shore installation in Balmoral, Sydney, before being transferred to the Alice Street Depot HMAS Penguin 4 in Brisbane the following month. Owing to its location and possible naming confusions with the Sydney Depot of the same name, Penguin 4 was actually renamed HMAS Brisbane in August 1940. Due to Australia's continuous 34,000km coastline, which is approximately the round trip between Sydney and London, and prior to the advent of modern radar and reconnaissance aircraft, it was comparatively easy for anyone with malicious intent to make landfall virtually at will or to penetrate Australia's territorial waters without anyone actually noticing. This was proven several times during the First World War, with German merchant raiders routinely doing this by traversing the labyrinthian island chains to Australia's north to attack shipping lanes or to mine Australia's ports. This act was mirrored by military leadership who postulated that if a hostile force landed an army on a remote part of Australia's coastline, it could be weeks before anyone actually noticed. This concern was first idolised in 1919 by Captain Chapman James Clare, a founding member of the Royal Australian Navy stationed in Western Australia, who, with facing a contraction of Australian defence spending, realised that despite having the sixth longest coastline in the world, the Royal Australian Navy actually lacked the available resources to properly police it. To augment this, Claire posited to recruit the people who were already living on the coast, namely postmasters, harbour masters, cattle station owners, prospectors, missionaries and the like, to work as a network of observers to monitor the islands to Australia's north who in a time of war would report back to military officials, ship, troop and aircraft movements and during peacetime, they would offer the same service but would report back things like suspicious vessels, illegal fishing and smuggling. In 1922, the Commonwealth Naval Board took Captain Clare's proposal and directed the Naval Intelligence Division to organise a unit known as the Coast Watchers. During the 20s and 30s, a skeleton service of white European plantation owners and administrators was established in strategic locations in northern Australia and was later expanded to include Australia's two newly mandated territories of Papua and New Guinea. This was along with the British Protectorate of the Solomon Islands. They were supplied with pedal-powered teleradio radio transmitters, which was a technology developed for use with the Australian Flying Doctor Service. In September 1939, at the commencement of the Second World War, these civilian coast watchers would be augmented by traders, miners and missionaries being overseen from the Naval Intelligence Centre in Port Moresby, with the Navy much to their frustration at having to divert budgetary funding to bolster Pacific assets while the war was raging in Europe. 
The officer in command for the onset of the war was Commander Eric Felt of the Royal Australian Navy, and soon members of the Australian military would further augment the civilian Coast Watchers. Owing to his experience in Signals, the first person selected for the Coast Watchers was, as you'd expect, Chief Yeoman of Signals Stephen Lamont on the 20th of April, 1940. He was selected for the remote and isolated Ania Island off the coast of New Ireland in the territory of New Guinea. According to Felt, Lamont was, quote, as Irish as a Paddy's pig. He was a complete stranger to conditions on an isolated island, but was a resourceful and dependable man, unquote. He was landed and placed in a temporary camp while word of Allied debacles in Europe captured everyone's attention. He proceeded to New Guinea aboard the Malaysia from Sydney on the 20th of April 1940 and arriving in Port Moresby on the 29th of April that year. For more training, on the 10th of May 1940, he embarked aboard HMAS Manura for a near island, but the voyage was cancelled in transit. He was landed at Sumerai and then from there he travelled to Rabaul and by small craft to a near island. His first months would have been miserable, but according to Felt, he adjusted himself to the conditions and carried on his watch very ably. With Japan's entry into the Second World War, the Coast Watchers became the front line, in concert with an identical operation conducted by New Zealand in the southeastern Pacific. Communicating by radio using code to report on hostile movements and items of intelligence value, it was a lonely and precarious existence. More than 600 Coast Watchers would go on to serve in Australia, New Guinea and the Pacific Islands during the Second World War, with their numbers including members of the Royal Australian Air Force, the Australian Imperial Force, Royal Australian Navy, United States Marines, United States Army, New Zealand Service Personnel and the British Solomon Islands Protectorate Defence Force. The codename for the whole operation was Ferdinand, from a popular children's book for the time, as explained by Felt. Quote, Ferdinand did not fight but sat under a tree and just smelt the flowers. It was meant as a reminder to the Coast Watchers that it was not their duty to fight and so draw attention to themselves, but to sit circumspectly and unobtrusively, gathering information. Of course, like their titular prototype, they could fight if they were stung, unquote. Due to the nature of the work, there is little available information relating to Lamont's actual activities on a near island. But what is known is that Lamont would have had to endure the isolation, the countless boredom, the weather, disease, and malnutrition that afflicted all the Coast Watchers. The climate would destroy clothes, paper, and machinery, and all for the nagging uncertainty that their efforts were only being tolerated by military officials. If he did see an unknown vessel, he would radio Rabaul, and if it wasn't one known to the area, that information would be passed on to the Royal Australian Air Force to investigate and a sighting sent headquarters in Melbourne. While the Coast Watchers were essentially on their own, they were also heavily dependent on the assistance of Indigenous groups amongst the islands for support, logistics, and intelligence. A dependence that was very much a blessing as it was a curse, with some groups staying steadfastly loyal while others turning on their former colonial masters as soon as the Japanese forces landed. As the first week of the Pacific Campaign came to a close, Japan had established itself within the Philippines, Malaya and Hong Kong, and by the 17th of December they'd taken North Borneo, Hong Kong would fall on the 25th of December 1941, Malaya would fall on the 15th of February, and Philippines on the 8th of May 1942. The next logical step would be for the Japanese would be the capital of the Australian territory of New Guinea, Rabaul. Australian military officials knew this and dispatched a composite force to Rabaul to hold the harbours and airfields for as long as possible. However, the force of 1,400-odd personnel was too large to be a guerrilla force, but too small to actually hold the harbour. Especially considering the force that was sent to Singapore was 14,972. A force roughly 6% of that was expected to do exactly the same thing that the 8th Division was, was unable to do in Singapore. 
There has been a lot of criticism from historians surrounding the size of the force and its conduct prior to the Japanese invasion, with many commenting that the lack of proper military training or preparedness, or even support from Australia, ultimately doomed the force before it even arrived. While most of the civilian population was evacuated as news of the attack on Pearl Harbor in Singapore had reached them, those that remained would not have long to wait for their turn, as on the 23rd of January, 1942, Japanese forces under the command of General Tomotaro Horai, the same officer who went toe-to-toe with Colonel Ralph Honor in the previous episodes, landed in New Britain. Understandably, Lark Force, as it was known, did not stand a chance, being less than 10% of the 15,000-strong force of first-rate elite Japanese soldiers and marines that landed against them. The 14 aircraft of No. 24 Squadron Royal Australian Air Force stationed at Rabaul were, if anything, but a token force against the oncoming Japanese carrier force, with most of his aircraft being destroyed in the air on the 20th. Famously, Squadron Commanding Officer Wing Commander John LaRue, after receiving orders to keep his squadron in the air, sent the following telegram to his superiors. Quote, Moriturai vos salamitus, unquote. Sorry, my Latin is a little rusty. Which initially confused his superiors in Melbourne until they opened their old Latin dictionaries, as it is the traditional salute given to Roman gladiators in the Colosseum, which translates to, quote, We who are about to die salute you, unquote. The disintegration of number 24 Squadron was the beginning of the end for Lark Force, which was already suffering from poor communication, poor leadership, and poor training. By 9am, in the face of communications failures and overwhelming Japanese strength, the Australian defence had lost its cohesion and the death knell was sounded when Commander of Lark Force, Lieutenant Colonel John Scanlon, issued the order of, quote, every man for himself, unquote. This is despite being issued orders that the men of Lark Force were to hold rebel for as long as possible. Scanlon issued the order roughly 10 hours after the first Japanese forces landed on New Britain. The forces involved were just something that they just could not stop. Almost immediately after Rabaul fell, a blanket of silence fell over the island, leaving officials in Port Moresby only to speculate on what had happened. The only information that seemed to arrive was sporadic messages from Coast Watchers that didn't explain anything in any great detail, as they were hurriedly breaking down their camps and teleradios and making the trek into the jungle. In the weeks that followed the fall of Rabaul, civilians and service personnel attempted to get off the island, either by using outdated aircraft or in small boats. Those that did make it managed to let the officials know the fate of the island and its garrison. While Rabaul fell, the Japanese lacked the resources to fully occupy the vast jungle island of New Britain, though they did not stop them from trying. They conducted multiple amphibious landings up and down the coastline in search of survivors of Lark Force or any resources of strategic importance. As the weeks followed, more information started flowing towards Port Moresby, as more and more Coast Watchers managed to get their teleradios set up and resume transmitting information. They would be augmented by plantation owners and other European officials that had mistakenly thought the Japanese would leave them alone and thus had elected to stay behind. They became intrinsically aware of their role was no longer that of a passive observer, but now active spies operating behind enemy lines. Just before we continue, here's a word from one of our sponsors. This episode was made possible thanks to the generous support from our backers, whose donations go towards paying for distribution and streaming costs, the digitization and procurement of records, as well as everything else that goes into making a podcast. And if you enjoy what we do here at I Was Only Doing My Job and want to support the podcast directly and get some sweet rewards in the process, follow the link in the episode description or visit our website to buy the podcast a coffee, either as a one-off or as an ongoing subscription. 
At the lowest tiers, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, and at higher tiers, you'll get a mention in the episode and even the ability to suggest future topics. For more information, check the link in the episode description or check out www.thedocnetwork.net. And now, let's get back to the show. Senior Naval Intelligence Officer in New Britain, Lieutenant Hugh McKenzie, had attempted to relocate his own coast-watching operation to the village of Toma, roughly 30 kilometers from Rabaul, at the end of a road. He sent off two of his staff with the heavy radio equipment before Rabaul fell. While his new base camp would not be set up, by the time he and his party of naval personnel joined Lieutenant Colonel Gill and his radio operator Private Stone, Rabaul had already fallen. Gill and Stone witnessed the rout of Lark Force from the score of civilian and military vehicles commandeered to evacuate the terrified men that were promptly abandoned at Toma, where the road ended there. One of the sailors accompanying Mackenzie was Chief Yeoman of Signals Stephen Lamont. Lamont had been rotated off a near island and was on Rabaul the day it fell to the Japanese, awaiting transport back to Australia. Lieutenant Mackenzie was blunt to the men under his nominal command. There would be no rescue. Their best chance of surviving was to make for the coast where a boat might arrive to pick them up or one they could commandeer, and the danger of this operation was that due to the harsh terrain of New Britain, which to this day is still not completely serviceable by road, is that the Japanese were conducting amphibious operations up and down the coast and were intercepting survivors of Lark Force in their attempt to reach safety. He then gave the collection of soldiers and sailors the choice. Join one of the larger groups heading deeper into the jungle or stay with him. Unsurprisingly, they chose to stay with Mackenzie. Initially, they moved as a group, lugging the unbearably heavy teleradio, which required 12 men to carry the heavy batteries and transmitters with them, until word reached them that Japanese patrols were closing. Mackenzie then gave the agonizing instructions to destroy their one lifeline to the outside world. It was simply slowing them down. Much like the trek along the Owen Stanley Ranges at Kokoda, the path that Mackenzie's force had to undertake to get to the coast was one measured in hours travelled, not in miles. As recalled by Lieutenant Gill, quote, to go forward one mile, you often have to travel four or five nearly vertically up and down, unquote. This naval force would join survivors of Lark Force and other Australian and European administrators and civilians, where over the following days, groups ranging from company strength down to pairs and individuals sought escape along the north and south coasts. Mackenzie's force soon swelled to 21 and actually crossed paths with Lark Force Commander Lieutenant Colonel Scanlon, who was heading in the opposite direction to actually surrender to the Japanese. In order to carry out the planned evacuation, Mackenzie knew he needed to get his hands on a working teleradio, and as the senior naval intelligence officer on the island, he knew where each of them was located before Rabaul fell. The closest set was last reported to be in Waterfall Bay, roughly 157 kilometres as the crow flies from Rabaul, or 137 kilometers from where they set off at Toma. He ordered his party to split with one force making for the teleradio station, while the rest made for Wide Bay, which was roughly 81 kilometers from Toma, and about that again to Waterfall Bay, to an attempt to organize a pickup from there. As they traveled, they started hearing rumors from locals that the Japanese had captured and executed an entire group of men, and on the 21st of February 1942, they entered the Toll Plantation the site of the horrific Toll Plantation massacre that occurred 10 days earlier. Roughly 160 Australian soldiers had surrendered there and were then tied together in small groups and then bayoneted by the Japanese. The bodies were then a mix between burned and buried to the point where only about 40 bodies were actually discovered by Mackenzie and his men. Mackenzie continued towards Waterfall Bay and made contact with Port Moresby, where he learned that there was an escape plan being concocted by Coast Watcher Keith McCarthy on the northern coast of the island. On the 25th of January, McCarthy had been asked by Felt to travel by boat to assess what had happened to Rabaul, 
But before that, he'd actually taken it upon himself to conduct clandestine sabotage operations by destroying airfields behind the enemy lines. After making contact with survivors of Lark Force, McCarthy decided to organize a rescue operation to get as many survivors and civilians off the island as possible, and all they had to do was get to him. McCarthy had already collected a sizable force of survivors and had agreed to wait for Mackenzie's group, but everyone knew that the longer they waited, they increased their chances of being discovered and that the dwindling supplies would run out and force McCarthy to leave. Mackenzie ordered all but a handful of his men, Lamont included, to head north under the command of Lieutenant Gill, while he stayed in the south to find stragglers. Gill's party proceeded over the mountains before a staging camp near the Kali Mission. As they made their way through the jungle, these previously fit, strong, healthy men started to fall victim to the third enemy in the Pacific War, the one that attacked both sides. The plethora of tropical-based afflictions that sapped strength and debilitated otherwise healthy men. The following morning, as the party was preparing to depart Calais mission, two naval ratings, Yeoman of Signals George Philip Thomas Knight and writer Thomas Ian Douglas, who had been suffering from dysentery, could no longer continue. Unfortunately, Mackenzie's orders were clear. The party could not wait for any man who fell sick and they would have to be left to fend for themselves. While Gill was torn with what to do, Lamont stepped forward and informed Gill that he would stay with them. Quote, Those two swords can't be left to die on their own. I'll stay with them if you like, and you get on with the job of getting Mackenzie and those swatties rescued. Unquote. Gill would recall of Lamont, quote, We had always jokingly referred to Lamont as the Heart of Oak. It was the old story, many a true word been spoken in jest, unquote. He then gave Lamont 25 pounds in cash, a rifle and 200 rounds of ammunition, and told him to use it to get anything the two men under his care needed. In El Tigre, by Frank Holland, MBE Commander Coastwatcher, Holland, who was also with Gill's team at the time, on the news that Lamont was staying with Douglas and Knight, said, quote, This was very disappointing to all of us, but Chief Yeoman S. Lamont decided to stay behind with his mates and do what he could for them. This was a great decision and sacrifice made on this man's part as he knew of the Tom Massacre affair and that the same act of savage cruelty would be done to him as the others, unquote. No one from Gill's team would see Lamont, Knight and Douglas again as they'd be captured by the Japanese on the 5th of March near the Warangori River. Due to their illness, both Douglas and Knight would be executed by the Japanese either on site or immediately afterwards. Thomas Ian Douglas was 27, George Philip Thomas Knight was 31. Their remains would be recovered and they would be interred at the Beta Parker War Cemetery in Rabaul, New Britain. Douglas would be buried under the inscription, quote, they will be done, unquote. Knight under the inscription, quote, your job of work well done, dear son, RIP, unquote. Commander Eric Feld released the history of the Coast Watchers in 1946 and felt it important enough to mention Lamont and his sacrifice, stating that Lamont was held at the Malangana Road prisoner of war camp where he presumably perished of disease or at the hands of the Japanese. And officially, Lamont would be listed as missing in action in March 1942. But the Malagana prisoner of war camp is not where his story ends. In September 1945, Major Harold S. Williams of the Prisoner of War Information Bureau traveled to Tokyo to investigate prisoner of war matters and compiled a series of lists of the whereabouts of Australian service personnel captured by the Japanese. And in 2012, the Japanese government transferred a large number of original records to the Australian government relating to this very topic. One of these files was the record containing the details of 1,053 Australians who died aboard the Japanese hell ship Montevideo Maru. One of those names listed was a 45-year-old Irish chief petty officer by the name of Stephen Lamond, 
was captured in the vicinity of the Warangari River, who is universally accepted to be Chief Yeoman of Signals Stephen Lamont. The MV Montevideo Maru was a 7,266-ton diesel-powered passenger ship built in Japan in 1926 and was used by the Osaka Soisen Kaisei shipping line ferrying expatriate Japanese to South America. It was requisitioned by the Imperial Japanese Army at the outbreak of the Second World War and it was used to transport troops and supplies and early on the morning of the 22nd of June 1942, Japanese guards rounded up Allied prisoners of war and civilians around New Britain and ordered them to the Rabaul port. The destination was Hainan Island to serve as slave labour. While at the dock, the men were broken down into groups of 50 and ordered aboard. Only officers and a small number of civilians were left at the Malagana camp. In total, approximately 850 servicemen from the Australian Imperial Force and Australian Military Force, as well as two members of the Royal Australian Navy and one member of the Royal Australian Air Force, were aboard. There was also approximately 210 civilians from across the globe crammed aboard the 130-metre-long vessel. It left port and travelled unescorted as part of a nine-ship convoy headed towards Hainan Island, keeping to the east of the Philippines in an effort to avoid Allied submarines. Unfortunately, they weren't successful, as eight days into the journey, they were being stalked by the salmon-class submarine USS Sturgeon of the United States Navy, fresh from its refit in Fremantle, Western Australia. Sturgeon manoeuvred itself into a position to fire its four stern torpedoes and, at before 0209 on the 1st of July 1942, it reported its torpedoes impacting approximately 30 metres aft of the funnel. Survivors from the Japanese crew reported two torpedoes striking the vessel, followed by an explosion in the oil tank in the aft hold. The ship sank in as little as 11 minutes. Although the Japanese crew were ordered to abandon ship, it appears that they made no effort to attempt to assist the prisoners to do the same. The ship's lifeboats were launched, but all capsized and one suffered severe damage. Of the 88 Japanese crew and guards, only 17 survived the sinking and subsequent march through the Philippine jungle. Accounts from Japanese survivors stated that those Australian prisoners of war that had managed to get free could do nothing to rescue their brothers. Yoshikai Yamaji, one of the survivors, recounted in 2003 that, quote, there were more POWs in the water than crew members. The POWs were holding pieces of wood and using bigger pieces as rafts. They were in groups of 20 to 30 people, probably 100 people in all. They were singing songs. I was particularly impressed they began to sing All Land Zine as a tribute to their dead colleagues. Watching that, I learned that Australians have big hearts, unquote. Not a single Allied prisoner of war survived the sinking. Now, I have received a number of comments and questions about how or why the Sturgeon engaged the Montevideo Maru in the first place. Simple answer is, there isn't an international convention on identifying building ships or rail cars as containing prisoners of war, like the international convention relating to hospital ships having to use the Red Cross symbol. The Montevideo Maru didn't have any special markings on it, and through the periscope of the Sturgeon, she would have been no different than the other eight vessels in the convoy, and as a state of war existed between Japan and the United States, she would have been considered a legitimate target. Now, while in Europe, the Axis powers did occasionally paint POW in English on the roof of buildings and train cars as a way of warning bombers of the presence of Allied prisoners of war, this wasn't always done and wasn't always seen or understood by the Allied planes conducting the attack. Officially, 1,050 men died aboard the Montevideo Maru in the tragedy, and it is considered the worst maritime disaster in Australia's history. Among the dead was Stephen Lamont, who was 44 years old. 
Ermie Lamont would remarry James Douglas Duckworth in Victoria, 1946, and pass away in 1950, aged 48. There is no evidence that she had any children. Chief Yeoman of Signal Stephen Lamont is commemorated on the Ballarat Australian Ex-Prison of War Memorial, the Coast Watchers Light in Medang, Papua New Guinea, the Rabau Montevideo Maru Memorial, Panel 76 of Column 1 of the Plymouth Naval Memorial in Britain, and is listed under HMAS Brisbane on the Roll of Honour at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. He was one of 38 Coast Watchers who died during the Second World War, though their names are listed with operational units, not as Coast Watchers. On the 18th of April 2023, the wreck of the Montevideo Maru was found 4,000 metres below the surface of the South China Sea off the coast of Luzon by the Dutch underwater search specialist Fugro with the assistance of the Australian Defence Force and the Silent World Foundation. For context, the Titanic was discovered at 3,800 metres and the Prince of Wales and Repulse from last episode were 56 and 68 metres respectively. The Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said in a statement that he, quote, hoped the news would bring a measure of comfort to loved ones who have kept a long vigil, unquote. Calls have since been made to have the ship declared a war grave, and I will update you on this new information as it develops. There is a Bible verse that is routinely used in epitaphs in regards to military service, and it's John 15, verse 13, quote, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, unquote. Stephen Lamont, faced with the choice of escape to safety or to stay behind to care for two sick men, he did not hesitate and in doing so exemplified that verse. Despite the perilous circumstances and the knowledge of the atrocities inflicted on prisoners at the hands of the Japanese, he chose to remain with his brother sailors. That decision to forego his own safety and well-being to support his sick comrades, the sacrifice he and the other Coast Watchers did to report on Japanese movements behind enemy lines at their own risk, was accredited with saving thousands of Allied lives, and for that, we are all eternally grateful. And that, folks, is the life, service, and legacy of Chief Yeoman of Signals, Stephen Lamont. Catch you next time, folks, for the next installment of Shipwreck Summer. Works cited in this episode are Abandoned and Sacrificed, The Tragedy of the Montevideo Maru by Catherine Sperling, Australia's Secret Army by Michael Vitch, The Coast Watchers by Patrick Lindsay, The Coast Watchers by Eric Felt, the translated Montevideo Maru Prisoner of War list, the media release of the discovery of the Montevideo Maru from the Office of the Prime Minister of Australia, the Royal Navy and Royal Australian Navy service records of Chief Yeoman of Signal Stephen Lamont, the ex-Prisoners of War Memorial Honour Roll, the birth register from Corolon, the last post-ceremony of Chief Yeoman of Signal Stephen Lamont at the Australian War Memorial, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, the Virtual War Memorial Australia, United Kingdom's National Archives, the National Archives of Australia, the Battle for Australia Association, and the website of the Australian War Memorial. Thanks for listening to the I Was Only Doing My Job Australia's Military History Podcast, a Doc Network production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gangdangara people whose elders have passed on knowledge for thousands of years, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was written, researched, produced, directed, and audio engineered by me, Ross, with additional research done by Laurie Favell of My Silent Hero. If you do know someone whose story needs to be told, feel free to leave a comment on an episode or send us an email at IWasOnlyDoingMyJobPod at gmail.com. If you like what we do here and you want to support the podcast, the best thing you can do is share this with a friend or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 
as it really helps others find the show. And if you want to join in on the conversation, join us over on Discord. And if you want more content, including show notes, photos, transcripts, and my various adventures finding memorials dotted around Australia, head over to our website at www.thedocnetwork.net and follow the show on all our social media pages at IWODMJ. Don't worry, there are links to everything in the show notes. Join me personally for more bite-sized history over on TikTok and pretty much everywhere else at Doc Winters. All opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of any entity, agency, or organization. It is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye.